Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's taken care of my kids' teeth ever since their teeth came along. He was a guest on this podcast just uh, a few episodes back. Dr. Sauer is a national speaker on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patients' smiles and positioning. We're lucky to have somebody with his expertise here in the area. You can learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or by visiting shimondental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to the arts programs at WTAMU, to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, to Family Support Services, the WT Foundation, and to Opportunity School. Read the free edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com and look for our November-December issue, which just released last week. It has a really great veterans section. With Veterans Day coming up, I hope you'll grab one. There's some amazing stories in it. Today's guest is Amy Hart, which is the on-air name of Amy Presley. Amy has been in local radio for at least a couple of decades. Right now, she's the audio media coordinator for Amarillo College and the music director for FM90, KACV-FM, which is the long-running radio station at AC. It's a fantastic college radio station. And, I mean, that's plenty enough to talk about, but over the past couple of months, Amy has released a new Texas Panhandle-focused true crime podcast series, along with her co-producer, Madison Fowler, and it's about the missing persons case of Dorian Thomas. Dorian lived in Amarillo's North Heights neighborhood and disappeared in October of 1998 when he was just nine years old. And that case has never been solved. And so Amy and I talk about her radio career. We talk about her new podcast series and what it was like digging into the facts of Dorian's disappearance. So here's Amy Hart. Amy Hart, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I know, actually, you've you've been in the presence of another interview, but that's because you were recording the one I did with Karen Welch like three or four years yeah. ago. Yeah. So this is your second podcast, but the first one on the mic. Yeah, that's true. Um, so welcome to the microphone. Um, I, I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests, and that's just to ask you why you're here. So how did you end up in Amarillo in the first place? Born and raised, I had aspirations of moving away, and that never happened. And I think it was just, I was supposed to be here this whole okay. time. And so I uh, went to River Road High School. I graduated from Amarillo College. I immediately started working in media. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there. And I, you know, when I first started doing radio, it was like, good luck finding a job. Good luck keeping a job. This is an industry that will chew you up and spit you out. And I've been doing it over 20 years now. And I'm like, how did that happen? But I'm really grateful for it. So tell me about growing up in the River Road area, going to high school there. Do you have a sense that it was different in any way from like some of the other high schools in Amarillo? Well, I went to Christian school up until I went to River Road. Okay. And so it was still, you know, conservative um, school, but I knew that there was a lot more, you know, farming and ranching and that type of thing than probably Amarillo High is going to have. Probably. Uh, but I actually lived in the Amarillo High district and I drove to, and River, drove Road out to River Road every day okay. for actually like almost six years because I dated somebody that lived out there too. And so I would sometimes come home and then go back out there again. So uh, thank goodness for cheap gas back in the late 90s. Yeah, for sure. I was traveling a lot. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a good time. I met a lot of really great people that I, you know, I still talk to some people today, but I'm not the, I have people I grew up in kindergarten with that I still talk to to this day. Right. I don't really have that. But I found some people that I graduated with recently that I'm like, oh, wow, we've missed a lot of time together, but it's nice to, you know, kind of come back together after all this time. Okay. Did you know that you wanted to end up going to Amarillo College? Did you know that you were interested in radio, all that stuff in, in high school? I wanted to be, and I kept getting the, don't do it. You don't want to do radio. Like okay. you don't want to get into People media. were warning you about yes, it Yes, they were warning me early on. And I worked for Eric Slater at the record joint on 6th Street when I was in college. And okay. I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna do mass comm back then, you know. And 
he was like, don't do it. Like, I'm just, I'm telling you now. And I was like, oh, I really want to though. Like I, this is where it's calling me and it's pulling me. And so I'm really glad that I did, you know, it's not, I'm not the wealthiest person ever. I mean, it's a job in media, but it's like, it's what I love doing. And I'm really passionate about doing it every single day. Tell me, tell me what your career path looked like because you, you went to college at AC and then you ended up working at AC or for FM 90. I mean, was, was there ever a point where you took off for someplace else and then tried it someplace else? Or were you always just kind of there? on? I was always just here. And I, I got hired um, right, pretty much right out of AC to go work at the Eagle. Okay. And I started part-time. At the time, I was working three jobs. I worked at Texas Tech Health Sciences Center. I worked at the Record Joint, and I worked for the radio station. And I just worked hard. And it was like, how do you prove yourself in radio? You show up on time. You, you, know, you do the things that other people don't really want to do. So yeah. I'm giving out donuts at 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings because that's what I wanted. I wanted to show that I wanted this. And I think I proved that point pretty well. Um, They hired me full time. I worked nights for five years and then I kept moving up. So it was like I became the music director. Then I worked middays. And then after 15 years of being there, I was like, I just needed something different. And I actually quit radio for a while. And I didn't think I was ever going to work in the industry again. And then the job at AC opened up and I was like, this is it. What did you do during that interim period after you Uh, quit radio? Prayed I wouldn't get sick because I didn't have health insurance. (laughs) Uh, It was was difficult. I did photography on the side, anything on the side. I was like, what do you, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll do anything to make a dollar at this point, which was horrible to have that position after having a career for so many years. And it it wasn't my favorite time of my life. It, but literally, I am such a sicky person. I'm the upper respiratory queen. And I was just like, I can't get sick because I can't afford it. And But it showed me like kind of what my students were going to go through. Mm-hmm. you know. And I think it gave me some empathy during that time because I had been jaded by being in a career for so long. And then when I got to the college, I was like, I know what that's like to hope you don't get sick or hope you don't miss work for some reason because yeah. you can't afford it. So what year did you get hired at AC then? Uh, 17 or the beginning of 18, actually, okay. February of 18. And so I've been there, you know, a little over five years, almost six years. Okay. And it's just been, it's like the perfect marriage of being able to teach students, running a radio station, concerts, interviews. It's like all the things that I love in one space. Tell people who, who I imagine there's a lot of people that don't always understand, okay, what's the relationship of FM90 to Emerald College, Panhandle PBS to Emerald College. Like, there's a lot of bleed over. Yeah. Um, you know, you're teaching, you're also running a radio station. <laughs> yeah. What does your day or what does your week look like so oh, people kind of get a sense of what your career is? I made a TikTok once of, like, the day in the life of a program director, and everybody was like, there's no way you do all this stuff in one day. I was like, I do all of this stuff in one day. But, yeah, there's a lot of bleed over. And I think that's with the entire mass media department. You know, we all work together. I work with the Ranger. I work with, you know, a little bit of everybody. But um, it's just nonstop. I would love to say that I have like a moment during the day to just reflect. Oh, no, it's just constantly going. Um, but I like that. I'm not the nine to five. Let me answer phones all day person. Right. You know, I'm just not. And or even just sit at, sit at a desk and yeah. do the same thing at a desk. And I love being able to, I, I kind of know what my day entails, but it's never the same day twice, Okay, which I love. Um, so, you know, it kind of starts out with the mundane checking emails and that kind of stuff. But then throughout the day, you never know what's going to get thrown at you. And I think any educator mm-hmm. knows that. Because by the end of the day, you might have three students and they're crying in your office because, you know, their boyfriend left them or whatever, you know, you just never know. And so I think that's what surprised me when I realized that the students aren't there just to learn. Sometimes they're there because they need a counselor, they need support. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that part of my job, like getting to know my students on that level and that they trust me enough to tell me their personal lives. What amount of time do you spend in an actual traditional classroom? Or are you in a traditional classroom? I am. For my Radio 1 class, I teach Mondays and Wednesdays uh, for an hour and 15 minutes. And so it's more of a lecture-based class. And then the lab portion is FM90. So if you take one of my classes, 
it's 50-50. So you're going to have classroom and then you're going to have lab, which is FM90. Uh, so I spend time in the classroom for Radio 1. Radio 2 technically is a classroom, but it's in the production room. Okay. So it's kind of like learning how to do production, but we're doing it in the room where you would learn to do that. So uh, so yeah, I'm do, I'm spending time in the classroom, but not... Not as much as I am in the actual station. Okay. I want to talk about the production side of it because I know your career in radio is long enough that you've seen a lot of things change. Yes. So give listeners who don't know that world a sense of of maybe what it used to be like when you started and then what it's like now technology-wise. Fortunately for me, it's kind of still the same, but I was on that cusp of transitioning from CDs into the automation system. Okay. So really, when I started as a student at AC, which was the early 2000s, it was an automation system. It was on the computer, really similar to what we still use. Uh, I never got to use the reel-to-reels or the, you know... Carts. The carts. I've seen carts, but I never really used them. Uh, But I know, like, the technology really, it changed super fast, I would say, from the 70s to the late 90s. Mm -hmm. There were so many different iterations of technology and things. And then it's kind of been the same for about 20 years. A lot of the same stuff that we started using back then, we're still using today. But we're starting to see AI creeping into what we're doing. And so even on the production side, you know, I use Adobe Audition pretty much primarily. And I know, you know, we have a class where we teach pro tools and things like that. But that's editing software for people that recording software. Yeah, recording software. And so literally now there's a magic button that you click and it's like, AI enhanced and the AI will like figure out all your problems. So I don't have to go in if I talk louder than you do and manually manipulate all of those things individually. Now the AI is like, I got it. Yeah. I, I'll take care of it. We know what the problems are yeah. here. We'll so, fix those. So that, that makes teaching challenging because now students are like, well, I can just hit the button. Right. I don't want to do it the long way. Why would I want to do that when I can just hit the button? So it's it's taking, you know, some maneuvering to figure out what I'm going to do next. I don't know well, that, yet. That's an interesting thing to talk about <laughs> because I think every every part of media for sure and a lot of other industries are dealing with that same sort of problem. Yeah. Uh, if it's a problem, you know, students are saying, why should I learn how to write a letter when I can just get chat GPT to write me a letter? Um, so when you are talking about that stuff with your students, what do you tell them? I mean, how do you explain the value of learning to do something the old way instead of just pushing a button? Uh, is there a reason why? No. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, and well, and I think, I meet a lot of students who want to do everything like because they want to learn. If you're if you're taking photography, for example, yeah, you could just go use a filter, but wouldn't it be better to just know right out the gate, like this is the exposure, this right. is, you know, I want to know how the camera works so I can just get it in the first try without having to go through the whole process. But and then they're still not in a dark room probably developing film. I mean Right. Like there's some things that you just move past and you don't worry about that. Right. Unless you're one of the film you know, fascinated kids yeah. in photography, totally. which there are some. And there still are some. Yeah. And and there's still the students who I have that are like, I want to learn every, you know, I want to know every knob on the compressor, like right. what each one of them does. But there's also those middle of the road people where like, ah, that's a little too deep for me, but I still want to learn the, the nuts and bolts of something. So it's it's finding the balance and it's more per student. Okay. How deep do they want to go back into time? And, you know, do they want to use just a film camera or not? You know, if we're talking about film, uh, if we're talking about radio, I have yet to have anybody say, hey, I want to I want to cut fil- or, you know, cut the tape for the reel to reel. That has not <laughs> happened yet. So, um, yeah. So I think we're just in that medium of we're still using digital technology, but I'm still making them do it the long way okay. because I'm like, I you're here to learn. So I think if you can learn all of the steps basically what the AI is going to do for you, right. but you know manually how to do it. It's like putting your camera in manual. Tell me how you talk to students about the state of radio, period, at a time when people are listening to podcasts instead of talk radio, they're listening to Spotify instead of a radio station, just wondering what's going to come on next. They'll just play whatever they want. Like, What, what does the world of radio look like right now as someone who teaches it and who does it? Well, in five years that I've taught, it has changed so much. 
the first semester that I taught, it was how many of you have listened to the radio and I would get a majority of hands raised. Now, how many of you have ever listened to the radio ever once and I get one or two out of the class? So we have people now at this point, they've grown up with an iPod. Mm -hmm. They've grown up with streaming services. They don't know what radio even is. But one of the first things I make them do is go listen to radio stations. And unfortunately, the biggest complaint is the amount of commercials. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the old, well, how do we pay the bills if we're not running commercials? But, you know, I worked at the Eagle when we had a rule. It was four uh, commercials in a stop set, and we only had two stop sets an hour. So only eight commercials for the entire hour. Okay. Now we're looking at 13 in one break. Yeah. You know? And that's just in a few years. And that's just in a few years. And so my students get really frustrated with that because they're like, well, I could listen to Spotify and listen to a 30 second PSA and back to the music I go. So it, that is a hard discussion. And, and to say, where are the jobs? Mm -hmm. You know, where do I, where do I send you to? If you want to do this for a career, there still are jobs, but they're fewer and far between even than they were five years ago. I think COVID had a really, really, um, it had a big impact on radio itself. Mm -hmm. Because people were at home. They weren't getting in their cars. They weren't going to work. Like the normal nine to five thing wasn't happening. So I know it's been in decline for a while. But I think the one thing that gives me hope is that every student, when they finish my class, on the last day I say, is radio still relevant? And they all say yes. Okay. Uh, Because I think they understand that as far as media goes, it's one of those medias. It's so secure in the technology it's still the same technology from the early 1900s mm-hmm. and it still works mm-hmm. and it's still local and it's giving you breaking news and breaking weather and it's free. And I think that's the one thing that every student says like, well, it's free and you can still act. Anybody can access that. And I think that they really enjoy that part of it. Tell me about the local part uh, and, and how that has changed here. Because I know even if you break it down further into people who do listen to radio, maybe in their car, some are listening to the pre-installed, you know, XM Sirius radio that, totally. that they get. And and so they're not listening to the Eagle or they're not listening to FM 90. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were to ask my kids, you know, where do you find whatever radio station? You know, we used to yeah. know 93.1, 95.1. Oh, we yeah, knew all totally. those things. Yeah. They probably never used that, yeah. you know, because they're just using satellite radio. So tell me what that looks like in the world locally and, and sort of how – local radio stations are thinking about that? Well, I think anybody that's stepping away from local content, that's a bad move. Mm -hmm. Because that is the one thing I think tying your local radio station to your community is talking about community events and talking about people in the community. I think David Lovejoy does such a great job with the chat, Mm -hmm. you know, bringing in uh, people from our community. And I think there's a lot of places that are you know, they're doing syndication from Dallas or Phoenix or Chicago or wherever they're missing out on those moments. And I think that's the one thing that is, that's why local media is great. It's like us not having a newspaper, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is where all the, the bad things start happening when you don't have somebody to check everybody right. on what they're doing, you know, uh, the, the watchdog thing. But I think local radio is kind of in that same boat. When you lose that or you don't have that anymore, we're in trouble. I really think that. Tell me the the last thing as we talk about radio. Um, when you are working with students, what are the things you are teaching them? And because I, I'm thinking about listeners who think, oh, well, you know, the person on the radio, they're just pushing a button to play a song and then they talk for a little bit, you know, and, and don't have a good sense about like what's the actual job. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's hard to do if you yeah. haven't done it. But like, what are some of the ways that you are educating kids who want to learn radio? What are they learning? Well, a lot of it is they're learning to be themselves on the radio. With and a microphone in With a face. microphone in your face. And, you know, I have horrible, horrible stage fright, believe it or not, because I was in a room by myself for 20 years. Okay. And nobody watching me. Nobody watching you, but yeah. thousands of people listening. Yes, right? but I didn't know that. Yeah, you I always see pretend there's one person. And so I always tell my students there's one, like the diehard FM90 person. They got their hat, their shirt, FM90 all the way. And that's who you're talking to. Um, But 
I try to layer it throughout the semester. I don't try to throw everything at them at once. And so a lot of it is just kind of like, you know, here, we're going to start with this and we're going to start small. And then by the end of the semester, I want them to be transformed. I want them to be a totally different DJ and maybe even slightly a different person than they were when they first stepped in to the radio station. I've had a student that even my, my boss came to me and he was like, I don't know if this kid's going to make it. He was so shy. He wouldn't even speak in class. I asked like, hey, tell me three of your favorite bands or artists. He wrote me a note and and like sent me the note and was like, I didn't want to say in class, but here are my three favorites. And by the end of the semester, he was having like study nights over at his house and other students were coming. And I was like, you're going to his house? Like I couldn't believe it. Uh, but I think we pulled him out of his shell mm-hmm. a little bit by doing that. And then he ended up going to the ranger and was interviewing people. And I really think that it started with my class. Okay. And he did not want to take my class. That's the other thing. People don't realize what class it is until the first day. And then I'm like, surprise, you're going to be on FM90. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and a lot of them try to back out and they're like, I don't want to do it. But I always just say, you know, I have hor- horrible stage fright and I do this every day. Um, you can be whoever you want to be in this room, but being yourself is the best way, you know. But I mean, that is something that probably a lot of people don't realize is that some DJs, some radio personalities, they are they're playing a role yeah. because in real life they're not necessarily like that. But totally. all all you have to be is confident and yeah. you know a, a consistent persona, whether that persona is yours or not. What I always say is, I warn them like. Don't give yourself a weird radio name that you have to like take with you everywhere, like tugboat or catfish or anything, you know, because now that's what you're going to be known as for the rest of your life. So I always say like, be careful in that. But a lot of it is just like you said, working on their confidence, working on, you know, reading something without it sounding like you're reading it, you know, as, as basic as that sounds, but you learn so many public speaking um, traits or like things in that class. It's like ripping a bandaid off for public speaking, really. Because it is public speaking. It's just yeah. public speaking, but you're isolated by but you're yourself, isolated. which it's, is such a weird... Which is why I love it, yeah. honestly. Because you can kind of be who you want to be in that room. Okay. Well, we, we talked about um, podcasting a little bit. And, and so I, I want to use that to, to kind of bridge into another topic. Uh, because you have recently introduced over the past couple months, I guess. Yeah. When it came mm-hmm. out, uh, a, a new podcast uh, or a podcast project about true crime in Amarillo. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So this first uh, season, I guess, is about uh, the case of Dorian Thomas, which people were around here in the 90s will remember. Um, first, tell me about the project and, and wanting to do the podcast, and then tell me about why your first subject was Dorian. So I, about 12 years ago, I started a Facebook group called the Macabre Club. Okay. And it started because a coworker and I, Morgan Tanner, actually from the Eagle, we were talking about true crime stories and like kind of outdoing, like, what about this one and this one? And I realized that a lot of people were talking about it in the office. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to start this little group and we'll share true crime stories as they come along or missing persons reports or whatever. And that was before true crime was like a big podcast. Yeah. Thing, right? Yeah. And so it was like, we weren't really finding, and it was really about internet stories at that point. And so we started the group and about seven or eight years ago, well, I've been there about six. So I'd say like nine years ago, I had the idea to do a podcast series about true crime stories in Amarillo. Shocker. We have a lot of weird true crime stories in this area. And so I made a list of a hundred show ideas like you do when you're obsessed with something. And, but I, I ultimately went to the people in that group and I said, if I were to do this, what do you want to hear about? Like, what's the one story you want to hear about? And overwhelmingly people said Dorian. Hmm. And so I knew that I wanted to do something related to Dorian's story, but very quickly I learned there was no information. Yeah, <laughs> And it's in that weird internet era in the late 90s where there was very little being posted. No news sources were archiving any of their stories from 98. Right. There's just nothing. It's kind of a black hole. The yeah. internet existed, but not in the way that it does now. Right. And so nobody was like archiving things yeah. at that point. And so, you know, I had to go do the old microfish at the at the library kind of thing. But the first interview when we did that with Brandon Thomas, 
we were, I mean, Madison, my co-producer and I, there were so many times that we were like, what? There were so many what moments because there was just not any information from the families. It felt like Mm -hmm. we, we couldn't find any stories, any interviews. And I feel like a lot of the families involved with not only Dorian, but Gloria Covington and Linda Jackson, who we also talk about in the podcast, I've never heard from any of their families. Yeah. And so I felt it was really important to tell all of those stories from the people that were there. And I couldn't rely on a bunch of news stories because I didn't have them. So it was like, well, you tell me the story. And so that's kind of what we did. I, I was really intrigued listening to the podcast uh, because I knew Dorian's story. I, I I was an adult, you know, when that happened. Um, I didn't know the connection to Gloria Covington or Linda Jackson. Like that was all new to me. And, you know, the, to, to me, it felt like a story that I had experienced all the news, news coverage when it happened. And then like, there's all these other elements of it that I just didn't know about. And I wondered, like, was that the experience with you as you started talking to people? You're like, oh, wait, this is way more complicated than a missing kid. Oh, yes. I would kick Madison under the table. And it was just like, we would both like be hitting each other in the, in the foot. And it was like, there were so many moments of even just Brandon Thomas's interview. Yeah. And I was like, how? How do we not know this information? There was so much of it. And, you know, I found out the um the connection between Dorian and Gloria in the the Charlie Project. And that's really what made me want to do this podcast was the Charlie Project article about him. And I was like, wait, it says that he found this the the body of a woman behind the YMCA. And I asked the Macabre Club group after they had said, we want to hear about Dorian. And I said, does anybody know about this? And we all agreed. Like, we had never heard that information. Hmm. So, and it's weird because now people are like, oh, yeah, it, it was common It was common knowledge back then. I did not know I, that. Yeah, I never saw it reported. Yeah, I never it, heard It may that. have been common knowledge within the community, but that did find its way into the newspaper accounts right. for sure. And I think the running thing was they didn't think that there would be a connection. Like, mm-hmm. it was just you know, happenstance, some kids playing at the park, came across this woman. But after doing our research, it it kind of feels like there could be a connection between her murder and his disappearance. So tell people who haven't listened to your podcast and sure. don't know the story of Dorian Thomas, give give us the basic overview of what happened to him so, or what we know happened. Yeah. To him. So what we know, we don't know, he went missing October 26th of 1998. He was nine years old. He was last seen on his bicycle, and he was last seen near Hughes and the Boulevard, near that toot and totem. And then he was never seen again. And it was one of those, unfortunately, it was one of those really wet weeks that we have around here. Mm -hmm. And so any evidence that there might have been was probably washed away. Um, Unfortunately for his family, a lot of doubt has been cast on them because they waited 24 hours before they called to, to report him missing. And so I think right out the gate, you know, you have a family that lives in North Heights. They waited 24 hours. There's just been a lot of unfair um, doubt cast mm-hmm. on them. So it was really important to have them speak about Dorian and, you know, how they've continued to search for him this entire time. And there there are a lot of complexities to it because... Dorian's family lived in the North Heights. They were a family that lived uh, socioeconomically were on the lower end of the spectrum. There was some poverty. Um, there were probably some racial elements to it in the way that that people maybe reacted to the story and, and whether it was taken seriously enough, whether certain leads were followed, you know, all, all those things play into this larger story. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder like how you thought about all those threads, you know, in telling the story and investigating it for a podcast, how do you decide? Okay, we're going to we're going to tell the story, but also we're going to pursue these different lines of inquiry. Well, a lot of it was uh, treating it as a journalistic type approach. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I use Madison. She is in charge of the Ranger at AC, right. and it was like, you know, I need your journalism side. Well, I have the broadcast side. Let's put those two things together. But a lot of it was, you know, just trying to be as honest as we could, but also letting them tell the story and me saying, you know, what is your relationship with APD? Not how are they treating you or do you think it was fair? None of that. Like, just what's your relationship? And then seeing what they have to say about that. Um, 
I think, yes, Dorian's story, it's, you know, talking about the racial elements and the socioeconomic elements, but Gloria and Linda also, because they, um, you know, we talked with Gloria's family and I know that the police department has said that she was a sex worker. They deny that a hundred percent. So I've never heard that side of it. Mm -hmm. And I think letting them say that's not true um, that's not something that I had ever heard before. Right. But that, at the same time, you also talked to APD and, and right. got their perspective on yeah. this. And so a lot of it was just, you know, I want to, I know the families are going to listen. I don't want them to listen and be re-traumatized by us, you know, sensationalizing anything. Mm-hmm. That's not what we want. I just want the facts of what we know to be put out to the public. And then I want people to take what they learn and make their own judgment on what they think happened to Dorian. You know, it's not my job to tell you. It's just here are the pieces of the puzzle that we know. Yeah. And then take that with what you will. What has the response been? It's been really well. I'm I'm wait I've been waiting for like some really bad emails or some bad something, and that hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Knock on wood. Um, but it's been really good. And I know his brother mentioned that he was really grateful to us for releasing this and I'm grateful to him for participating in it, you know? Yeah, yeah. He didn't it's, know me from anybody. And it's a lot to ask of somebody to <laughs> yeah. relive that, to talk for, you know, however many hours I'm sure the interview process was. And Gloria's family, too. I, I was so grateful to them um, for taking that time. You know, I invited them to my house, kind of like what you do here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm some random person off the street just asking about your your relative and like that situation that is something you don't really want to bring up and talk about. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful that they took the chance with us. I want to ask you this, uh, just because I, I know a lot of people probably think about it, um, and and I know I do uh, as a podcaster, but like when you think, oh, I want to do a true crime podcast, and I want to tell this story, and I know I need to interview these people, and then, then you need to decide what quotes you're going to use and what order and how to build the episode. Like it's a really complex undertaking yes. Especially from somebody like yourself who is comfortable with a microphone, you can talk into it, but like you're not scripting out all these things all the time. You're not interviewing people for this sort of thing. And so there's a lot of new things that you had to learn how to do. And I wonder if you can talk about that. Maybe the the challenge that it, oh it brought you in <laughs> saying, okay, I'm going to do this. And now you've got this finished thing, but it's, it was, I imagine it was really hard. Two, two years, solid years that we worked on it. So yes, it was very challenging. And I learned so much through the process. And like you said, workflow, I think was a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I asked all the great producer friends of mine, Karen Welch. I asked Marcy Donovan. I'm like, how do you do this? I've never produced anything on this scale. And they were like, you'll figure it out. And you'll figure out your workflow. And they were right. I eventually got it. But it took so much longer than it should have. Um, but I used, you know transcription services that really helped me mm-hmm. at first I was like trying to transcribe by hand oh. I just didn't know any better you know um but it's another yeah. thing AI can do pretty nicely yes at this point. it's been lovely and so I think a lot of it was just yeah trying to figure out the story that we wanted to tell but a lot of it was just here's a great quote let's build around that mm-hmm. like this is the thing we need the direction we need to go in um one of the hardest parts was you know, there's a there's a suspect that we talk about who's deceased, and it was like, how do we how do we navigate that? Because do we say his real name? Right. Because he's no longer here. He has family that still lives mm-hmm. here, and we're saying all these things about him. So yeah, we, the family was pretty open to talking yeah. about him as a suspect, but then again, you don't want to right open yourself up. I mean, legally, ethically, whatever, to right. disparaging somebody like that if. If it's not true. Totally. And you don't know. And you don't know. So and so we ended up changing his name and trying to cover up as much like personal information as we could. Um, but yeah, there's those moments where I was like in panic. Like, I don't know what to do with this because I've never had to do yeah. this before. Did um, you talk to attorneys? I did not, actually. Really? I did a lot of Googling okay. of <laughs> like when you have a podcast and you're interviewing <laughs> true crime people. Yeah, that kind of thing. But yeah, so we're kind of just, I think what we tried to do was take the journalistic route. And like, if you could print this in the newspaper, you know, how would you do that? Right. So a lot of it was Madison, me, you know, picking Madison's brain, like, okay, how do we do this? But also, 
you know, I just want to tread lightly with everybody. I don't want APD mad at me for something that I posted. I don't want the families mad at me, but mainly I just want them to tell the story. Mm-hmm. I'm just the storyteller. I'm just putting it together as a story. So I'm trying not to put my opinion in there. That's for the listener to do. When you think about your opinion, I guess, what surprised you about the process? Whether it's the the content, the interviews, or the complexity of making the podcast? Like, what did you leave it thinking, oh, I did not expect this? Oh, God, so much. I would say both. Okay. Um, first of all, I did not ever foresee it taking two years to put it together. Okay. I thought, two months, I'll have this whole, oh, six episodes knocked out yeah. in two months. I cannot believe how wrong I was about that. And so it was just so many trips to Palace, you know, Madison and I just sitting there down in coffees and just trying to come up with something and writing, writing scripts. I did not realize it was going to take me that long. And then, um, but once I got that workflow going, I was good. But then, yeah, the interviews, I can't think of an interview where I didn't have a moment where my jaw was on the floor. I think Deanna, especially, which is Gloria's daughter, mm-hmm. and then uh, Dorian's brother, Brandon, those two interviews, there was just so many moments where I was like, I can't believe what I'm hearing, you know? Um, and so a lot of that, that's in the podcast. There's not really any moment that wasn't a jaw-dropping moment that yeah. isn't in the podcast because I was like, if we're if our jaws are dropping at the table, it's going to be the same for everybody else. So When you think of people listening to this podcast to the Dorian Thomas one. What's your goal with it? Like, what do you, what do you want to happen? I really, I just want their names out there again. I want people talking about the people involved um, because they were victims. And I don't know that they got as much recognition, as much talk as they should have back in 98, 97 Mm -hmm. for Gloria and Linda. Um, And that's really unfortunate. I feel like I don't I don't want their lives to have been lived for you know nothing, right. I guess. And it just I really just want people to hear this story. I there's so many of my students who've never heard Dorian's name because they weren't even alive yeah. then. And by the time they were born, they weren't talking about him anymore. And I think that's a real shame when you think about it. So I think really I just want I want their names out. I said I've always said if one thing is different a new lead or a mural gets painted for him or one thing happens, then it was a success. And Keith Grace has said that he's working on getting a mural painted right. in North Heights. So I hope that that happens. Um, and then the day that we actually ended up releasing the podcast way, way early, we were not going to, uh, we were not there yet. And we only had one episode done And Brandon Thomas posted that APD had a new lead in his brother's investigation. And that day I was like, we have to release it. And so we released the first episode that day. Then we waited a couple more weeks and then followed out with all the rest of them. But I don't know if that's because of us, because I've always heard that, you know, a cold case will keep going to the bottom of the pile if nobody from the community calls to inquire about it. I don't know if that's true. Then it gets a little more attention, I guess. I feel like that's true though, because after 25, 26 years in the cases of Gloria and Linda, now they're sending off DNA. Now all these other things are happening. So I don't know if that's true or not. Hmm. I don't know, but I've noticed a lot of things have been happening since we've released some of the episodes. Did the process of researching and creating this, did it, teach you something about Amarillo or did you learn anything new? You've lived here all your life. You know, the community, but this allowed you to do a deep dive into, you know, the police business, into detective work, into the North Heights community, into all these different things that might've been foreign to you. What are some of the things that you learned about Amarillo in the process? Well, definitely that, all of that, which is, I have lived here my whole life. I grew up on the North side it's not that far from North Heights and all no. that. You know, it's right right down the road, kind of. I think I was really surprised at the lack of investigation into Gloria and Linda's murders. Okay. I, I do feel like APD did a lot for Dorian, and I think there's a great debate on if they did enough. Um, I know that, according to Brent Harlan, yeah, they they did a lot. 
And, you know, one of my questions was, what if this was a white kid on the south side of town? Would more have been done? You know, I think opening up those, they're kind of wounds that we're opening mm -hmm. up. And especially in 1998, I, I don't think Amarillo was very favorable to people that lived on the north side. I think we've done a lot in recent years to try to patch some of that. But I don't know if it'll ever be the way that it is for the rest of the city in that area. You know, I don't. It's patching. It's it's fixing something that needed to be fixed, but that doesn't mean it's all better. And you know, I interviewed Keith Gray's. He's lived over there forever, and he mentioned that up until the '80s, there were mostly unpaved roads in North Heights. Right. And while they were paving alleys in the south, paving alleyways in the southwest mm -hmm. side, and so yeah, it's that's hard to think about your city in that way, a city that I love so much, and then thinking like. But it's not fair to everyone that lives here. It's fair to me because I'm a white woman, but it's really unfair to a lot of other people that live here. And I hate seeing it that way. And so that was hard to swallow, was to think about those unfavorable parts of the city. Yeah. Is, is there anything in the process of doing this that makes you more hopeful? When you're, I mean, it's, it's a hard story to tell. It's, it's a, a really child who's missing a little boy was never found. Family does not have any sort of knowledge whether he's alive or dead or anything like that. Um, and so certainly there's an emotional component. Like, yeah, tell me, tell me what that was like. And if you ended up with anything positive, maybe. You know, I am not a real cry person. I'm a, you know, stuff it down and deal with it in therapy later kind of person. And it wasn't until we completed the first episode and I drove to North Heights and I listened to the episode while I sat outside where Dorian's apartment used to be. It's mm. been bulldozed yeah. now, but I sat outside of it and I just sobbed <laughs> and I had, it had been two years of me working on it with zero emotion. And that moment it was like, I just, it all came pouring out of me and I just felt so horrible for his family and for him. And if he's still alive or not, because we don't know, um, so that was really, really difficult to hold it all in. And then mm -hmm. eventually it all comes pouring out of me. Um, but I think through the process, like, I don't know, I learned a lot about myself and that I, I love true crime. It is hard, though, to edit it over and over again. And here, you know, Deanna, Gloria's daughter, talking about her having to identify her mother's body. Yeah. And it's just, it's really... Diff that was really difficult, it, more difficult than I thought it would be. But I'm so glad I have a good therapist that helped me through it. Because seriously, I I had to talk with her about it. Yeah. So I was like, how do you, <laughs> you know, she listens to people talk, talk about grief and trauma all day. And I'm not used to that. I'm I'm not built for that. And having to hear it on repeat was really, really tough. To To close it out, tell me about getting to do something like this that has a creative element that has a journalistic element um, that's different from your day-to-day -day work other yeah. than the microphone part. Mm -hmm. Like what did that bring you? Oh, I loved it so much. It was, it hits on all the things I love and I love reach researching. I love doing the deep dive. I love getting in the rabbit hole. I love all of those kind of things. And so I love that part of it. I love storytelling and I really love getting to tell someone else's story that doesn't have the ability to do so. And so that was really rewarding for me. And so I just hope that people that listen to it, I hope they get new information out of it. Uh, I hope they have those moments where they're like, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't believe that happened and nobody talked about it or whatever. Uh, I think I love sharing those type of moments with people. This episode of Hamarillo is supported by StoryBridge, an early childhood literacy program. In Potter and Randall counties, less than half of the children entering kindergarten are ready to learn to read. This educational deficit at age five has an impact for the rest of a child's life. It negatively affects their performance in grades one to 12. So a couple of years ago, StoryBridge launched the Dolly Parton Imagination Library Program here in the Panhandle to address this problem. Thanks to generous local donors, more than 6,000 children under five are now registered and receive a new age-appropriate book in the mail every month. And this is at no cost to their families. Well, StoryBridge wants to expand this program. They want to reach more than 10,000 area children. 
And that's where you come in. To give or to get involved, visit storybridgeama.org. That's storybridgeama.org. And also, here's something I haven't asked before. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. If you listen to this podcast, I'd love for you to talk about it. Tell sponsors and advertisers you heard their message on the show. Tell my guests if you know them. Tell them you listened to their episode. All those things are just so important. I mean, rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. It helps people find the show. But basic word of mouth in a community like Amarillo is also so important. So if you do that, thank you. Okay, I'm back with Amy Hart. Amy, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and it's known for its archives, which you're probably familiar with this. Last year, 545 different researchers from around the state and the nation visited Panhandle Plains to use its research center, library, and archives for a variety of projects, writing books, creating podcasts, all kinds of stuff. Uh, So you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Ooh, I hope we have more art, more music. I think we've turned a great corner and we're getting into like the arts even more around here. Mm -hmm. I just hope it's like an even bigger explosion of art in this community. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? (laughs) Uh, Rattlesnakes. Yeah. I hate snakes more than it. Do you encounter One, rattlesnakes in the city? You know, my mom lives in Claude, so yes. Okay. I don't encounter them in the city. Maybe River Road area. Might, Maybe River Road but... area, yes. And I, one rattlesnake is too many. Okay. So I'm going to say there's just too many of them. Okay. It's a blanket <laughs> statement, but that's okay. What does this area not have enough of? I think that we need an independently owned film theater, like okay. an old school cinema where we can go and watch some cult films and, you know, watch them on actual film. I really, that's the one thing that I wish we had here. Okay. Yeah. I feel like there are some places that could serve that purpose. Um, you, you could, you could buy the drive-in and do I know that. I, my friends and I have been talking yeah. about that. There's a good opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of cities, maybe larger cities have repurposed, you know, old or decaying, you know, movie theaters and given them that sort of niche programming, I guess. Yeah. And to great success. Yeah. And so I'm like, come on, Amarillo, we need one. My husband and I have been talking about this for 20 years. And anytime, you know, there's an old theater that, you know, sells or whatever, we're like, oh, we had our chance and we didn't take it. But I would love that. And And I think also I want good coffee at the at the theaters we do have, especially now with these nice reclinable, you know, heated chairs that you get, I need a good coffee. So I have to sneak in coffee everywhere I go, but it's worth it because I don't want to fall asleep in the comfy chair. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes (laughs) sense. Okay. What's one local nonprofit you appreciate? Uh, For me personally, the AC Foundation has done a ton for my students, for the radio station, for the entire area down there, Mm -hmm. Panhandle PBS and FM 90. They have just, they have done so much for us in renovating uh, our program and our, you know, everything looks so beautiful now, but also they help out the ARC at Amarillo College. So um, when students are in need, that money is typically coming from the AC Foundation. So I really love them. Okay. What's another local crime story on your radar? Maybe you don't have to tell us what the next season is going to be, but like, what what are some things that that you think about other stories? So I always think about J. Kelly Pinkerton. I think it's one of those stories that's very haunting. It's, you know, around Halloween. Um, He was really young at the time of the murders, and he's one of the youngest people to ever be on death row in the state of Texas. There's a lot of elements to that story, and also a person who maintained his innocence, I think, the entire time. Um, there's also a radio station murder that happened in the like early 90s. Yeah. And I'm really intrigued to tell that story, but I know the woman actually still lives here, and so I would not want to do it without her being involved in some okay. way. Um, she served her time, and you know she's, but she still lives here, and hmm. so. But it's an interesting story, and there's not a lot of information about it. So, like you said, there are a lot of those kinds of stories yes. that you 
so many. Recent I think, or 40 years ago. Yeah. And, and you know, the Brian Dennecke story, mm-hmm. I think that's another one. It's such a huge story and people think they know the entire story and they might not. So I think that's another one of those. It's, it's always kind of like in the back of my brain. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Ooh, I have so many. There's so many good ones. Uh, I really love Lazy Gator. Mm-hmm. I just, their food is so good. And I have like the same thing every single time I go, but Black Cat Bayou, shout out to that. It's real good. And then I love El Tejavan. So if I'm going to go Mexican food, I usually go to Tejavan. Okay. Original location or Tascosa uh, yeah, location? The Tascosa location. Okay. It's close to my house. Got it. So that's why. <laughs> What's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? Back to art and music. I think it's the art and music scenes. I think we have so many incredible artists and musicians that are from right here. So many of them are touring musicians. Mm -hmm. So you're getting like LA, New York quality musicians right here in the city. And I just, I'm always blown away by it that I meet another one that's like, oh, I'm a touring musician. It's so cool. Okay. Last question. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Gosh, probably like 10 years ago. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think. It was probably somebody's birthday because that's mm-hmm. typically when you go. But yeah, it's been a little while. Okay. It, it may look about the same yeah. as it did 10 years ago. Maybe adding the brewery. And I don't remember when that happened. That probably was longer than 10 years ago. Yeah, I actually did a, uh, with the Eagle, I actually did a all night marathon of Night of the Living Dead. Okay. With Johnny Black, we were host and then we had these little competitions that people had to do. But it was at the Big Texan when okay. they had the uh the haunted house out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was probably okay. one of the last times I was there. All right. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Oh my gosh, just one? Yeah, just Wait, one. I can't there's no way. I, here's what I will say. I hate hearing people say there's nothing to do in the city. We have too much to do in the city sometimes. But if you haven't been to the Amarillo Little Theater recently, if you haven't been to see the Lone Star Ballet or the Symphony Orchestra, or uh, I mean, it goes on. We have a goth prom now. We have Sixth Street. If you're into rockabilly or you're a biker or, you know, there's just so much to do here in the city. And I love us for that. Okay. I agree with that. <laughs> so Amy, it's not one thing. It's, it's, yeah, like it's not all thing. the things. <laughs> Amy Hart, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank I appreciate you. it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Amy for the interview. You can find the Dorian Thomas podcast on most podcast platforms. Just search for the Macabre Club or the series What Happened to Dorian Thomas. Thanks also to StoryBridge, to Shim and Dental, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the podcast, and to Angelina Marie for editing the show. And thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 326. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.